We are uh, today. We are beginning uh, Genesis chapter 38, and uh, last week we covered a good section of chapter 37 because we had struggled so much to get through that chapter. We just kind of grabbed the bull by the horns and and uh, covered a large chunk of it last week. So, uh, before we read the passage, because we're really going to kind of change subjects when we get into chapter 38. So, before we do that, uh, just uh, for a few minutes, let's take some time and just think about some of the things we talked about in chapter 37. So, what do you remember, six out in your mind, that we talked about last week? Drawing a blank here, folks. <laughs> uh huh. What do you think you would have done? Well, I don't know. It'd be tempting, wouldn't it, to try and say, don't do this, you know. Uh, we have to kind of hand it to the Lord that He's He's able to restrain Himself when He sees disaster coming and lets it sometimes come. What else? Yeah. Okay. With with Joseph, when his father told him to go, he just said. Uh, to go uh, check on his brothers, he said he was going. He would do it. And uh, what did that reveal to us about Joseph's character? Yeah, yeah. He's a man who submits to authority. And of course, in this particular context, early on in the story, we would think, well, you know, why wouldn't he? It's his father, and it's just to his advantage. Uh, He's been uh, somewhat promoted within the family, so to speak, and so it's to his advantage. But what we'll discover about Joseph is that he typically submits to authority even in situations where, where the authority is oppressive, where the situation is very difficult. So we see him recognizing and submitting to authority in, uh, uh, in the context of, of uh, being a slave and then in the context of being a prisoner. Uh, so that prepares him then. So when he's finally elevated to the position of prime minister of Egypt, he's a man who has the kind of character because it's been cultivated in his own life through his own submission to authority. Anything else? Not being here last week, I was kind of curious to see or to find out if you dealt with Joseph being the type of Christ. No, we did not. Were you thinking of going into any of that? No, not yet. Not yet? Not yet. <laughs> Would you like to say something? Well, there's some very obvious things here. The, the fact that he was sacrificed for his family to live, mm-hmm. sent to Egypt, uh, sold for 20 shekels of silver, mm-hmm. uh, you know, various things. Yeah. And I just started thinking about it and then didn't get to develop it. Yeah. Sure. I thought maybe yeah. you would. Yeah. Uh, we probably will at some point in our study of Joseph, but we haven't yet. And even yeah. his response, I will go. Yeah. 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 So there are some striking parallels there. That's true. Yeah. We we talked about four the four kind of leading characters in the passage, which who were Joseph, of course, and Reuben, and Judah, and then of course Jacob. And we just talked about them briefly. And then we kind of backed up and we looked at kind of the big picture of the chapter. Do you remember what we were what was the point we were making when we kind of backed up and looked at the big picture overall, the kind of the wide canvas of the chapter? Uh, go ahead, that's part of it. Yeah. What, what we're confronted with in chapter 37 is just this overwhelming cascade of evil. One thing after another, particularly in the life of Joseph, but also in his father's life, just this, this flood of evil that comes 
uh, over us there in that chapter, and it can be kind of depressing to read that. But what we reflected on is how Joseph later in his life, and of course we'll ultimately get to that passage and study it later in, in, in Genesis, but, but later as Joseph looks back on it, he says to his brothers, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. And what we talked about is, is that this actually is kind of the beginning of a theme that runs all the way through Scripture is the idea that God turns evil to good. You know, the classic statement of that is Romans chapter 8 where he says all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. And the point I was trying to make, and I don't know how well I made it, but the point I was trying to make is that, is that when all is said and done, when, after the final consummation of all things, and we're standing in the presence of God and we're looking back over all of human history and we're looking back over our own lives and the experiences of our own lives, we will see that God has not simply set evil aside and replaced it with good, but that what God has actually done is He has somehow turned all that evil so that it resulted in good. That God will actually use all that evil for good. And I suggest to you, as I understand the Scripture, that that this is true about all evil. This is not simply true about some of the evil that happens in our life. That some of the evil God's just going to kind of push aside and replace with good. And then some of the evil He's actually going to turn and actually turn and use that evil for good in our life. But what I believe is that God ultimately in the final analysis will turn all evil, both moral and natural, in the history of the world to good. And when He does that, then we will have some sense and some inclination of the greatness of our God. How powerful He is, how awesome He is, and how good He is. That He not only does good, that He not only triumphs over evil, but that He is so good and that He is so powerful that He is able to take all the evil and all the wickedness that all evil people and all wicked people have done for all time and He is able to transform that and use that for good. And then we're going to have some sense of how great our God is. And I'm looking forward to that. I don't know about you guys, but, but I'm looking forward to that. So, so that was kind of the, the summation of, of our study last week. Now, today I want to pick up with uh, chapter 38. And uh, uh, chapter 38 is, 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 is just, it's just a difficult passage. You know, when you, when you start a study of Genesis and you're starting to go through the study of Genesis, you're not thinking, I can hardly wait to get to chapter 38. Because <laughs> it's just a problem chapter. Okay? Uh, and it's a problem chapter for several reasons. One is, um, one is just the things that happen in this chapter. Just, you know, they're hard to understand. Okay? It's hard to understand. And we'll read uh, part of the chapter here in a few minutes. But, but it's just, it's hard to understand why Judah does the things he does and, and why he goes where he does and what's the significance of all that. And, and, and there are kind of these seemingly random comments that are made in the chapter. We go, why was that made? Why did he say that? And uh, so there's all this. And then there's this really bizarre thing that happens between Tamar and Judah. And from our 21st century perspective, I mean, it's just ugly. It just looks... It just looks filthy to us, okay? And so it's very uncomfortable to us. And then we actually find out that because of this thing that happens between Judah and Tamar, that, that ultimately through that lineage, the Christ will be born. And then we go, oh, I don't know how to process. And so all of that is very difficult for us. But even aside from that, we have just started one of the most exciting stories in all of Scripture, which is the story of Joseph. I told you when we were starting it the other day, a couple of weeks ago, I said, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. This is a great story. You know, it's a wonderful story. It has all the, all the drama and power of a, great, of a great story, and it's true, and it ends in such a great way. And, and by the time we get to the end, we see reconciliation and we see exaltation. And we just, we just see so much about the story of jo- in the story of Joseph. It's, so, it's just wonderful. And so I love the story of Joseph. 
So the question is, here we are. We have now started into the story of Joseph in chapter 37. And we're just barely getting into it. And then all of a sudden he just drops chapter 38 in the middle of all of it. This weird story about Judah and Tamar, you know. And, And you just go, why? Why is this story in here? Now, Obviously, it's important from a genealogical perspective because it it reveals to us the genealogy of the Christ. And so in that respect, uh, it it is explanatory to to some degree. But why here? Why didn't he why didn't he tell it before the Joseph story or after the Joseph story? But why does he put it right here in the middle of the Joseph story? And so these are questions that just kind of naturally come to our mind as we encounter this chapter. Okay. well. Uh, some of those things we're going to try and answer there. We're going to try and figure some of those things out. But let's read uh, the first uh, 19 verses, and I'm not sure if we'll actually get that far today. And, and I was really hoping, uh, I was really hoping to get all the way through chapter 38 before we had this two-week break that's coming up. Uh, but because of the power outage we had a couple weeks ago, we didn't get chapter 37 done, so we didn't get. Uh, to 38 in time. So, unfortunately, we're going to split this chapter up into at least two studies. Uh, hopefully not more than two studies, but uh, we'll get as far as we can today anyway. So, uh, in chapter 38, beginning in verse 1, it says, And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went into her, meaning he married her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Er. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Chezeb that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Er from his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to the sheep herders at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. It was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He said, Therefore, I will send you a strong, uh, excuse me, a young goat from the flock. And she said, Moreover, will you give me, will you give a pledge that you, uh, until you will send it? He said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. Okay, well, we'll be doing good to get that far today. So, uh, so as the story opens, we have Judah. And what's the time frame it gives us here? Meaning... 
Okay, so approximately at the time that Joseph has been sold into slavery and Jacob has been told uh, that Joseph is supposedly dead. Okay, so one of the things that's important for us to remember about chapter 38 and explains to some extent why chapter 38 is where it is, why this story is right here in the middle of the Joseph story, is you'll notice that there's a series of events that take place here. Judah... Uh, right shortly after the time that uh, or about the time that Joseph is sold into slavery, Judah leaves his brothers and he goes over to the to this uh, city of Adullam and he li- begins to live there. He develops a, friend, a long lasting friendship with this guy by the name of Hira. And uh, and then he finds a wife and he gets married and he has three sons and those sons grow up. And, and it's time for them to get married and to start to have children. So what kind of a time frame are we talking about here? Pardon? Well, we're talking about, yeah, basically a generation or a part of a generation here. So we're not talking about something that just happened over a period of a few days or a few weeks. But we're actually talking about something that happens over a period of about 20 plus years. So when we think about that, it helps put things in context to realize this starts at about the time that Joseph is sold into slavery. And and chapter 38 goes on now for about 20 some years. Then when we get to chapter 39, we're going to go back to the beginning of that 20 years and start looking at the story of Joseph as it proceeds through that same 20 year time frame. So the point I want you to understand is that this story of Judah is unfolding during that whole time that Joseph is in Egypt and he's sold into slavery into Potiphar's house and he spends some time as a slave in Potiphar's house and then he spends a number of years in prison and he's in prison for a period of time and then ultimately, he, uh, after 13 years in Potiphar's house and then in prison, he's ultimately elevated to the position of Prime Minister of Egypt and he spends nine years as the Prime Minister of Egypt and then his brothers appear and, uh, in Egypt and he, and he is reconciled then with his brothers after, after, uh, after this long period of about 22 years. So, the the important thing for us to understand is that these two events are kind of unfolding together. So we're getting to look first at, at Judah's life and what's going on in Judah's life. And then we look at Joseph's life and what's going on in Joseph's life. And what we discover then is that there are really a lot of interesting parallels and contrast between Judah and Joseph. And we find with Joseph, we find this man of, of outstanding character who is he, he's uprooted from his family uh, against his will and he's sent off into a foreign environment and he lives in this foreign environment where he's surrounded by pagans and he's surrounded by idol worship and he's surrounded by adultery and temptation and all that sort of thing. And what we'll find with Joseph is he stands remarkably faithful to God and true to God and, and, and he maintains his moral integrity and his moral purity. And, and so we have this remarkable story of Joseph. In contrast to that, over the same period of time, we have Judah. And of course, what we saw about Judah last week wasn't all that hot. He was one of the guys that was responsible for selling Joseph into slavery. But over this same period of time, we see parallels to Joseph's life in the life of Judah, where he leaves his family. He departs from his brothers, but not against his will, but volitionally. And he goes and we find him... Uh, we find him in the middle of this pagan environment, this Canaanite environment. And we see that in contrast to Joseph, uh, Judah's life just isn't going well. Okay, And he raises children who are wicked, uh, who are evil, and they do evil things. And, and, and Judah uh, does some really evil things here. He, he, uh, he mistreats his daughter-in-law. He, he puts her in a very difficult position from which she... Uh, has to act uh, under desperate measures to get out from under. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and then we see him uh, uh, thinking, at least, that he's engaging a harlot, uh, uh, propositioning a harlot. It's just the, the contrast between these two men is remarkable. And so it's, it really is quite startling then when we find later in the Joseph story that Judah has changed. And he will change and you'll see that. And he actually becomes, as I mentioned last week, he becomes a central figure 
in the reconciliation of the brothers and the family and the restoration of the family. But that's a long way down the road. So this is the time frame that we're talking about. These events happening while Joseph is going through what he's going through in, in Egypt. Judah is going through <clears throat> what, uh, what we're reading about here in chapter 38. Now, I want you to notice that there are a number of little flags that are kind of stuck in the ground along the way of the story of Judah here. And they give us some indication about Judah's character at this point in his life. And, and these become then important because the story of Judah tells us something important about Israel, that is the nation of the people of Israel, the, uh, Jacob and his sons, his family, about their going down to Egypt. Because the story of Joseph is a story to us to tell us, primarily, first, of course, to tell the children of Israel how Israel got into Egypt. Okay, That's what we're going to study when we study the story of Joseph. How did Israel end up in Egypt? Okay, And the children of Israel, as they're coming out and they're in the wilderness and the Pentateuch is first being written and this story is first being explained to them, they are being given the information of how they ended up in Egypt. And that's important for them to know, to see that it was God's hand that God took them and God put them there. But that still leaves some really big questions. And the really big question is, why did Israel go to Egypt? And the story of Judah is a story to, that tells us not how Israel went to Egypt, but why it was necessary that Israel go to Egypt and that they be in Egypt, not only in Egypt, but they be in Egypt as slaves. And the story of Judah explains that to us. And I'll show you how as we go through the story. But we see these flags that I mentioned that are an indication to us of the character of Judah. And in some sense, we've seen Judah already in, in uh, working with his brothers and, and, and kind of cooperating with his brothers in, in that whole thing with Joseph. And we, so we, what, we've under, what we understand now about Judah and his brothers is they're kind of all uh, you know, peas in a pod type of thing. You know, they're, they're kind of basically the same kind of people. Okay. And, and so now we get a good close-up look at Judah. And the first thing we notice about Judah, the first thing it tells us about him in the chapter is what? Okay, he left his family. Now, it doesn't tell us why, but it's pretty easy to kind of read into that a little bit. Isn't it? He's, just, he's just been involved in this conspiracy to sell Joseph, and now he's had to deceive his father, and he's tried to... He's, he's put on this facade of trying to comfort his father over the supposed death of Joseph. And, and, and now the next thing we see, he's departing from his brothers. And I can't help but think that there's some dynamics going on there. The scripture doesn't tell us what they are, but I can just imagine that Judah is so racked with the guilt and the difficulty of living this lie day after day after day, he's just got to get away from it. You know, I, and admittedly, I'm reading a little bit into the text there, but, but uh, for whatever reason, Judah departs and he goes. Where does he go? Okay, so he goes. He goes. He he develops this friendship with Hira and and. And this friendship with Hira then goes all the way through the story. So what we realize, now that we know how long this story really covers, we realize this is a long-lasting friendship. So here is Judah's best friend, Hira, and, and they are best friends for like 20 years. Okay, They're best friends for a very long period of time. But Hira is an Adulamite, which means he's from the city of Adullam. This is in Canaan. Okay, So Hira is a Canaanite. So, so Judah has left his family. He's left, he, he's left Jacob's bet ab or Jacob's household. He's no longer living in, the, in this patriarchal unit of Jacob's bet ab or Jacob's household. And he's gone off by himself in Canaan. And he's developed a long-lasting friendship, his best friend, 
a guy by the name of Hira who is a Canaanite. Okay, so he's now moved away from his family and set himself down right in the middle of the Canaanites and developed a close friendship with the Canaanite with a Canaanite. And then what does he do? He marries a Canaanite. Okay, so he marries this Canaanite. Uh, and we're never given her name. We're just told she's the daughter of Shua, who is a Canaanite. And so we're never actually given her name. But it is pointed out to us that she that he has married a Canaanite. Now, when you hear that he married a Canaanite, what do you think about? What does that remind you of? Esau. Okay, it reminds us of Esau who married some Canaanite women and that caused all kinds of problems in his family and with his parents, Isaac and Rebekah. And, and it actually is, that's the reason that Jacob was sent from his, that's the reason his father sent him, his mother had other reasons, but that was the reason that Isaac sent Jacob off to pay Naram was to prevent him from marrying a Canaanite. Okay. So when we discover now that Esau caused problems by marrying a Canaanite and that Rebekah and, and, and Isaac were determined that Jacob was not going to marry a Canaanite and they sent him away. Now when we see Judah marrying a Canaanite, that should ring a bell. That should, that should be an indication to us that there's something wrong here with this picture. And it's an indication of what's happening in the life of Judah. Is that Judah is slowly moving away from this context of being associated with the people of promise and he's slowly becoming progressively more identified with Canaan and with the Canaanites. Okay? And, uh, and so he marries this Canaanite woman and they have together three sons. The first one is Er, E-R. The second one is Onan and the third one is this guy, Shela. Now, they're all born uh, in very close uh, uh, time frame to one another, probably born like a year apart from each other, one another, in order to fit all these events into the period of time between Joseph's sale into slavery and 22 years later when the family goes down to Egypt, you know, we have to see that these three boys were all born quite closely together and very early in this time frame. Okay. So these three boys are born. And then Judah, it says, goes out and he gets a wife for his firstborn. And her name is what? Tamar. Okay. So he gets a wife for Tamar. Where is Tamar from? Trick question. Where's Tamar from? Now, is your silence an answer or is your silence you don't know? <laughs> we don't know where she's from. I think that's significant. Because the scripture has made a point of pointing out to us when somebody married a Canaanite, right? Now, most commentators assume that Tamar's a Canaanite. But I don't assume that. And the reason I don't assume it is because it doesn't say she's a Canaanite. Okay. Now, it may be that it may be that she's not a Canaanite and it doesn't mention it because she's not a Canaanite. Or it could be that it doesn't mention it because though she might be a Canaanite, it's not significant that she's a Canaanite. Because she's a woman of sufficient character that it's no longer significant that she's a Canaanitish woman. Okay? So, in other words, I'm suggesting to you that Tamar is either not a Canaanite or that she is a woman of, woman of such outstanding character that it's not significant that she is a Canaanite because the Scripture doesn't make a point of that when just earlier in the chapter it did make a point of the fact that Judah had married a Canaanite. Okay. Now, when their third son was born, right after the third son was born, what does it say about where he was born? Okay, he was born in Chesham. Now, you all are glad to see that, right? Because that explains a lot to you, right? You go, man, I'm glad they put that in there. <laughs> yeah. You're going, why do you say that? 
Well, that's actually one of these little red flags that Scripture has planted in the text. Because Adula, which is the city from which Hira uh, comes, is a Canaanite city just a little bit southwest of Bethlehem. Okay, several miles southwest of Bethlehem. But Chezeb is another Canaanite city further southwest from Adula. So what's interesting here is that is that uh, Judah has moved from his family and he's moved to Adullam and he's become friends with the Adullamite Hira. Okay? And he lives there for a while and his first two sons are apparently born there. But by the third time his third son's born, he's moved further away from his family. He's now moved of course, it's all in Canaan, but in, in, in relationship to his family, he has now moved further into Canaan. And so what we're kind of beginning to see in the life of Judah is a pattern that's very similar to what we saw in the life of Lot, right? That first he just moves down to the plain and then slowly, progressively, he moves closer and closer until he's actually living in the city of Sodom. Okay. So what we're seeing here in the life of, of, of Judah is this progression that he's becoming more and more like a Canaanite. And he's married a Canaanite, and now he's raising Canaanitish sons. Now, they're not Canaanitish sons as far as, you know, they're, they're, born from, they're born from Judah, but they act like Canaanites. Why do I say they act like Canaanites? Yeah, because they're evil in the sight of the Lord. And God says, God says about her, this guy's evil. I've got to take him out of the picture. Now, we don't know what he was doing. It doesn't tell us how he was evil. But there are a lot of wicked people in Canaan. So, I actually think that possibly the issue here is not just that he was evil. But that it was through her that the lineage was going to come from Judah. And God could not tolerate that. And so, he took her's life. We're not given any more information than that. So now that Ur has been taken, then we get into this whole confusing thing about Onan and what he was supposed to do and what he didn't do. And uh, it's kind of an ugly picture, isn't it? We don't really like to talk about this passage. This is a passage we'd rather just kind of skip by because it's really uncomfortable for us. But I can't do that because... I teach expositionally. So I've got to deal with the chapter, okay? I've got to deal with the text as it stands. Well, so Judah goes to Onan and he says to Onan, the second son, he says, you need to go into Tamar and you need to fulfill your responsibility, your obligation to Tamar because you are the brother-in-law. Okay? Well, what's he talking about there? He's talking about, uh, he's talking about something that is referred to in theological terms uh, is referred to as a leveret marriage. L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E, a leveret marriage. Okay. And this is something that was prevalent within Near Eastern, uh, Near Eastern ancient culture at this time. Okay. And, and, and it wasn't just practiced by, by uh, the descendants of Abraham, but it was practiced throughout that whole region of the world by all kinds of different people groups. Okay? And, and this all goes back to this whole thing we've talked about many times before that's so central to our understanding of Genesis is the, content, the concept of the patriarchal culture. Okay? Remember, we're talking about a patriarchal culture. We're not talking about a culture like we have today in the 21st century. We're talking about a patriarchal system. And, and you'll remember that, that when we introduce this whole idea of a patriarchal culture or a patriarchal society, uh, the thing that we stress is that your identity within the culture is irretrievably linked to your association with a patriarchal clan or family. Okay? And a patriarchal household consisted of the oldest male and all of his descendants, his sons and his son's sons, etc., etc., out to 50, 70, or 100 people or so. And then when it got 
when that household got too large, and when we say household, don't think of a house like we have today, you know, 1,500 square feet, four bedrooms, you know, that type of thing, okay? What we're talking about is a compound, okay? A large walled compound, or sometimes there would be tents, but if it was more permanent, there would actually be walls around it. And within this compound would be individual living units, and each individual family would live within these units, but they were all related to the patriarch, to the papa, to the, to the, to the oldest male. Okay? And over a period of time, as it grew and became unwieldy, then it would break off, and a new bet-ob, or household, would begin. Okay? One of the sons or some of the sons would go off, and they would start their households, all right? and then they would all be related together as a clan. So you'd have this clan. They're all related. And then it goes out and expands out further and it becomes a tribe. And then as it expands even more, it becomes a nation. Okay? But everything ultimately comes back to that central unit, which is the Ba'ab of the patriarch, the household of the patriarch. Now, the question is what happens when a, a man from one household marries the woman from another household, okay? So this guy, he's in this Be'ab, he's in this, under this patriarch, and this woman, she's in this Be'ab, and she's under this patriarch, but the two of them now are married. What happens? Well, in the 21st century, 21st century, what happens? You go out on your own, you start a new household, right? Okay, but... In that time, what happened, Ginger? The woman leaves that bet ob and she goes over and she becomes a member of this bet ob. She is now part of this bet ob. She's part of this household and she's under this patriarch. So when Tamar married Er, she left her father's household, her father's bet ob, and she becomes a member of Judah's household. Okay? What happens then when a woman marries a man, she's entered into his bed, she's entered into his household, she's under that patriarch, and her father and her husband dies and they're childless. Well, within the patriarchal culture there was a way to resolve that. Because there are two issues that are that were critical within the patriarchal culture that were critical to be resolved. One is the issue of lineage. To whom does the inheritance pass? Okay. And it was imperative that the name of the the name of the deceased man be preserved so that the, the, the inheritance could be passed on down through him. So you had to preserve this lineage. But how are you going to do that? The guy just died childless. The other thing is you have a woman who's been uprooted from one bet ob and she's in another bet ob but now her one connection with that bet ob has been forfeited or lost how do you preserve her identity because a woman's association with the bet ob is the only way that she had protection and provision a woman didn't just go out on her own now we see Judah he goes out on his own but a woman just didn't do that because if she did that she was completely without any identity and she was completely vulnerable. She had no provision. She had no protection. She was at the mercy of whoever or whatever. So in order to protect the woman and to ensure the line of inheritance, the culture had a thing called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage meant that when a man died childless, one of his brothers or in some cases, in many cases actually, in many of these uh, people groups, one of his brothers or the father would be responsible to take that woman, make her his wife or one of his wives, and the first child born through that union would actually carry the name of the deceased man and therefore carry that lineage through and give to that woman a son who would then grow up and provide for her the protection and the provision that she needed. 
So within the society and within the culture, there was provision made for the protection and the care of all the women. Yeah. Well, oftentimes they were. Or yeah. Maybe I said yeah. backwards, but yeah. yeah, those women were yeah. protected, so they yeah. So they oftentimes had to had to yeah. engage in harlotry just to survive. Yeah. Not always, but but it did happen uh, in in some cases. Uh, so. So this whole thing about leveret marriage that is so strange and bizarre to us within the 21st century actually makes a lot of sense within the culture. And in fact, it makes so much sense that I would suggest to you that it is something that was actually God-ordained. And in fact, 400 years after this, when we get out there in the wilderness, we get to Israel to Sinai, what happens? God actually canonizes leveret marriage in the Mosaic Law. Deuteronomy chapter 25. Now, it's structured a little different in Deuteronomy than it is in some of the cultures around them, but he still canonized. It's codified in the Mosaic Law. But I would suggest to you that we are living here before Mosaic Law. We are living in the age, what we call the age of conscience. And I would suggest to you that this whole idea of leveret marriage is something that God had implanted in people's conscience. This was the right thing to do. To us, it seems bizarre. To us, it seems strange. To us, it almost seems immoral. But in that context and in that culture, this was God's way of protecting women. And so, it is, I believe, imprinted on the conscience of man at this point. Because it is so prevalent throughout all the cultures. And I would suggest to you that it's very clear that it is God's intent and God's will because of how we see God responds when Onan refuses to do it. When Onan refuses to take that responsibility, God kills him. So then we see that this whole thing about leveret marriage is pretty important to God because God is concerned about the widows and the orphans and God is concerned about the vulnerability of the women within this system. And so it's important to him that these protections be instituted. But it's also important because God has made a promise to Abraham. And in fact, before that, God made a promise to Adam and Eve. And the fulfillment of that promise is going to be through Judah, we'll see eventually. And so it's very important that this thing be done right and Onan refuses to do it. And so Onan's sin, Onan's sin is that he refuses to fulfill the responsibility because he knows he's the second born son. And as we've talked about, the way that the way the inheritance is passed down is the firstborn son gets 50%, typically, gets 50% of the inheritance and the rest of the inheritance is divided among the other sons, right? So, he's the secondborn son. The firstborn son has died. He now stands to inherit 50%. But if he fulfills his responsibility to Tamar and gives her a son, his 50% drops to 25%. So, this is really not in his interest. And so, he's not interested in doing it. And so, he refuses to do it. He, he, he marries her. He takes her as a wife. And you'll, if you have a New International ver, uh, Version, you'll notice that it says, whenever he went into her, implying that, that he, did, he did have ongoing sexual relations with her. It's just that whenever he got... To the critical point, he spilled his seed on the ground. So the point is, the guy is exploiting this woman. He's taking advantage of this woman, but he refuses to fulfill his duty or his obligation to her. And God killed him. And so then, we are left with Shela. And Shela is still a little young, but not too young, but he's still a little young. And so Judah now, what's Judah thinking? Okay, this, this woman is, an, is unlucky, you know. He's not accusing her of murder, by the way. She's, she's just an unlucky woman, okay? And so he, he's going, I, I don't want to lose my third son. So what does he do? 
sends her back to her dad. Now, this is really bizarre. Okay, because now he's taking her out of the Be'ab that she is part of by marriage and sending her back to this Be'ab to which she is no longer a part. But Judah, we'll see in our next lesson, retains authority over her life. He actually has the authority to put her to death. So he's sending her back to daddy, but he's retaining all the authority. What's he doing? He's trying to put her where she can't get to Sheila. He's trying to make sure she's over there and she ain't going to have anything to do with his third son. And he's determined he's going to keep it that way because he's scared. Now, he thinks that she's the reason his sons have died. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with this picture? He does not recognize that this was what God did. That his sons were wicked and that God took their life. And so this is another indication of what's wrong here with Judah. Is he so spiritually insensitive now by this point, he doesn't realize that his sons have died because God killed them because they were wicked and he's blaming Tamar. And so he sends Tamar away. and says, I'm going to keep her away from my, from my third son. But I'm going to retain authority and power over her life. Now, we're going to stop here just a second at this point because we're about out of time. But, but, I, but I, want you to, I want you to see and understand what's going on here. And we'll pick, when we're back together again, when I'm, when I'm back, we'll pick this story up and finish it. But, but you see what's happened with Judah? Judah has made a series of bad choices and, and like I say, kind of like Lot, he's just moved progressively further and further away from the people of God and the promise of God and the people of covenant. And he has gone over and he's associated more and more and more with the Canaanites. And he's become very Canaanitish in his, in his life, in his style, in the way he thinks. He's not thinking spiritually. He's not thinking truly. And he's not living a holy life. And he's exploiting and taking advantage of people. He's living like a Canaanite. And what we find, and as I suggested, Judah is just an example of the way all these guys are at this point, right? Except for Joseph and probably Benjamin. But now we begin to understand what was really at stake. Why? Okay, we know how Israel got to Egypt, but why was it necessary for Israel to go to Egypt? You see? Can you imagine what would have happened to the sons of Israel had they stayed in Canaan for the next 400 years? 400 years later, they would have been indistinguishable. They would have been totally assimilated. And that distinct group of people that God had called and promised to Abraham and said to Abraham, I'm going to raise up your descendants and through them I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. That unique, special, holy nation would be completely assimilated, completely indistinguishable from the world around them. And God's purpose and God's plan for the nation of Israel would have evaporated. And so what does God do? Well, he uproots them out of Canaan. He uproots them out of this world that they're in. And he sends them to Egypt. And when we get them to Egypt, we're going to find out that the Egyptians loathed them. So he's going to uproot them from people who are all big about intermingling with these people. And he's going to send them to a people who loathe them. The Egyptians. But not only that, but he's going to locate them in 
He's going to locate him in just a special area of Egypt where they're kind of isolated from most other Egyptians. And then, to make sure that there's none of this kind of hobnobbing together and friendship and buddy-buddy stuff, he makes them slaves. Not because he hates them, not because he's angry at them, not because he's cruel or mean, but because in making them slaves, he keeps them pure. So that 400 years later, when they come out of Egypt, they are for him a holy nation, a nation separate, a nation distinct. And what we see illustrated in the life of Judah is what will happen if this is allowed to go on. And so then we come to understand how vitally important this issue of separation from the world really is. That God has something He wants to say to the world. And He has a people through whom He wishes to say it. And at this particular point in time, the people for whom he wished to say it was the nation of Israel. Today, in the 21st century, who are the people for whom God wants to speak to the world? Pardon? The church. And now we understand why it is so important that the church be separate from the world. Now, Jesus makes it very clear and Paul makes it very clear that that we're not talking about geographical separation from the world. (laughs) But what we're talking about is the way we think and the way we act. That in our thought lives and in our actions and in our behavior, we be different from the world. And I would suggest to you that the story of Judah and the exile into Egypt is a warning to us of how seriously God takes this issue of separation from the world. And that if we as God's people, if we as individual believers, and if we as the church do not live, do not maintain that holiness and that separation and that distinction from the world and the way the world lives and the way the world thinks, if we don't do that, what will God do? to ensure that we stay separate? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But we see what He did with Israel. And it is a lesson to us of how important it is when God says to us in 2 Corinthians, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord God, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. Okay, well next week Mike will share with you and then Rick and then I'll be back in a couple more weeks.